The reading for today comes from the book of Galatians, chapter 2, verse 11 to 21. Hear now the word of the Lord. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The word of the Lord. morning. Uh, just a, two quick announcements before I begin. One is, um, uh, I was reminded, uh, when we uh, get together for our uh, BLTs, the Bob and Larry Times, um, please take pictures and post them. I, I realize I've been having these meetings and I, I keep forgetting. So um, just as a way of encouraging one another, I want to just encourage you to uh, meet up and take pictures, and uh, let's post them to uh, just encourage one another. And the other thing is, uh, next Sunday, beginning next Sunday, uh, we are going to start our Sunday morning Bible workshop on 1 Corinthians, and I want to just encourage everyone to attend that, uh, beginning at 9.45 in the room uh, right there. Um, it's going to be led by an incredible cast of teachers and scholars, um, this is the finest you've got ever got, really, it's the finest group of teachers you're ever going to see uh, in your lifetime um, <laughs> in this church. Um, so uh, I really encourage you to come and just uh, study the word and um, just, yeah, uh, please come and uh, just uh, enjoy that time together. All right, so let's uh, begin uh, as we do every week uh, with review, beginning with question 20. Who is the Redeemer? What sort of redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? Why was it necessary for Christ, the redeemer, to die? Does Christ's death mean all our sins can be forgiven? What else does Christ's death redeem? Are all people just as they were lost through Adam, saved through Christ? No, only those who are in Christ will be saved. 
What happens after death to those who are not united to Christ by faith? They will be cast out from the presence of God forever. How can we be saved? Only by faith in Jesus Christ. What is faith in Jesus Christ? What do we believe by true faith? Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and He descended into hell, the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, our Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Okay, that's good. Um, I see that most of you have not memorized it yet. Um, <laughs> but we'll keep, we'll keep at it. Uh, question 32 uh, is the question for today. What do justification and sanctification mean? Uh, these are I, two really big words. So the uh, answer is justification means our declared righteousness before God made possible by Christ's death and resurrection for us. And sanctification means our gradual growing righteousness made possible by the Spirit's work in us. Um, But the answer that we're going to memorize together is a little bit shorter. Justification means our declared righteousness before God. Sanctification means our gradual growing righteousness. Um, By the way, I thought it was kind of a a nice coincidence yesterday, if, if you saw the Belmont Stakes, a horse named Justify won the, uh, the, well, I don't know if you care about that, but I thought it was a good name for a horse to, uh, to win. Anyway, all right, uh, let, let's pray together. God, thank you for uh, this day that you have made. And uh, Lord, it's uh, two big words for us to think about. Um, help us to understand these words and, and why they matter and uh, how we might apply uh, this to our daily living. So uh, teach us and strengthen us and empower us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So our reading today um, may have sounded like a scene out of a high school cafeteria to you. Uh, Peter's been having table fellowship. That is, he's been hanging out and eating with this, the new kids in the block, the Gentiles. And you know, he and the other leaders of the church had agreed officially that circumcision and dietary laws, uh, these aspects of what it meant to be a Jew, were not required to become a Christian or to be a part of the Christian body. He's already probably had the vision of God where God told him to eat all these uh, foods that he had never eaten because he had followed a very strict diet. Um, He's already probably visited with the the Roman centurion Cornelius um, and has already had fellowship uh, with him. He has proclaimed, truly I understand that God shows no partiality But in every nation, anyone who fears and does what is right is acceptable to God. So he he knows that these uh, dietary requirements are not relevant. He knows the truth of the gospel. That there are no aspects of being Jewish that is required to be a part of the body of Christ. And according to Paul, he was living like a Gentile, like the other folks. 
But when some of these people uh, who are affiliated with James, who seems to have been more Jewish, the circumcision party comes, out of fear, Peter withdraws from his Gentile friends and only sits and eats with his Jewish friends, Jewish Christian friends. And because he's the leader, the others with him, and Paul says, even Barnabas, you know, even Barnabas who you could kind of count on, even he followed Peter in this hypocrisy of not eating with the Gentiles. Um, it, I couldn't help but think about what you see in school cafeterias. I don't know if this is still going on. Uh, I, I suspect it is. But I can remember uh, my first year in college, there, there, I had a lot of anxiety when I had to go eat in the cafeterias because, you know, um, when you walk into the cafeteria, there will be very visibly segregated tables, right? You would see just, you know, all white students, all Asian students, all black students, right? It's noticeably visible that people were separated by race or by ethnicities. And I really struggled with that because I'd walk in, and in the beginning of the years, you know, I would sit with my, um, the kids on my hall, so it was kind of a, kind of a mix. Um, but then sometimes I'd go with my... Um, you know, the students from the Asian American Students Association, right? So then it's like, you sit with all your uh, Asian friends. And then I was part of this, like, minority group, so then, you know, mostly uh, black students, so I sometimes sit with them. And then sometimes I was part of the, the Campus Crusade, which was mostly these, like, white athletes, so, you know, all these really tall, big guys, and I'm, you know, the, the one Asian guy sitting there. And whenever I sat with one group or the other, I always felt like the other groups were judging me, like, why are you sitting over there and not with us, Right? And uh, it, it took me a while to kind of get comfortable and, and, you know, figure out that, okay, I can sit with whoever I want. But, um, and it, it, my own sort of difficulties and insecurities were not rooted directly uh, in the way I was trying to understand my faith. But what it did was it, it told me or it made me really think about where did I belong or where did I want to belong and why was I being excluded and, and what does it mean to belong to a group and to actually sit down and to eat with a group of people. So it made me think about all those kinds of things. And, and I think that's what's going on here too with Peter. You know, and what Peter did here is, I think, especially dangerous because it's, it's very subtle. Peter didn't make some sort of wild declaration. He didn't tweet out you know, racist remarks about separating the Gentiles from the Jews. He didn't argue against the Gentiles or for the superiority of the Jewish Christian uh, church. He just kind of, you know, just quietly withdrew and just kind of stopped eating with a certain group of people and only ate with his Jewish Christian friends. So at first glance, we might think, well, you know, it's not that big of a deal. It's not like he's fighting with people or, or whatever. He's just eating. But for Paul, he sees this as a fundamental undermining of the gospel. Peter, by his actions, is saying that Gentiles are not going to be a part of this group. If they want to join, then they've got to become more Jewish. Or, worse, we're going to have two kinds of churches. We have the church for Jewish Christians... And we have a church for Gentile Christians, right? It uh, reminds me of this idea, this, this wrong idea of 
that we can have somehow separate but equal churches, like America tried, or uh, apartheid in South Africa, that somehow you could create these separations and somehow it'd still be okay. And, and Paul says, no, no, that is not what the gospel is about. And so Paul gets quite angry, and it says he opposed Peter to his face. Uh, because he saw that at stake here was not just about eating, but about the heart of the gospel and what it means to be a Christian. And so beginning with verse 16, he writes, We know that a person is not justified by works, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. A person is justified through faith in Jesus Christ. Justification by faith is the signature rediscovery of the Protestant Reformation. We are justified, that is, we are made righteous. We are declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. Um, You know, when you use a word processor, you can line up all the words along a margin. That's called justification, right? You can have the, like... The default, the left justification, thank you. Or, or if you want, you could have a right justification or center justification. But, but the idea is that all the words or all the lines are going to be lined up in relationship to the page. Right? Uh, like so, you know, to be justified is to be put in the right position in relation to God's perfect righteousness. So we are we are placed, we don't move there, we are placed by God into a right relationship. This is really Paul's core vision of what it is to be a Christian, of who we are in Christ Jesus. God makes right. God makes righteous through faith. It is not our work. God takes someone and places that person into a right relationship with him. And how does that happen? It is not through the observance of the law. And so that, that's why there, there can be no separation between Jews and the Gentiles. It's for both Jews and Gentiles. One standard. There is no distinction whatsoever in regard to justification because it is entirely the work of God. It is entirely the work of God. You know, God, God is perfect and he demands a perfect righteousness on our part. And none of us can meet that standard, Right? Imagine taking a class and the teacher says, you know, you have to get 100 to pass this class. You can get a 99.9 and he's still going to flunk you. Now, of course, none of us are going to get that close to, um, close to that. But, but even Paul, who was so righteous, I mean, Paul, who lived his life so diligently and disciplined, I mean, he, he, he was so religious, and yet even he realized that he could not get near God's righteousness. No one can. No accomplishments, no effort can bring us into a right relationship with God. And so what God does instead is he gives us Jesus so that for our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Jesus is the righteousness of God revealed for us and for our sins and God transferred our sin unto him and put that to death on the cross. And so that 
gets transferred back to us. Christ's righteousness is given to us because our sins are forgiven on the cross. That is what we call justification. That is, we are counted righteous by God because of what Christ has done for us. Okay, we've got to be very clear on this. Uh, Maybe some of you uh, in the church when you were younger, someone taught you to remember the word or as a way of thinking about justified as just as if I'd. Did anybody ever learn that? To be justified is to be just as if I'd never sinned or just as if I'd obeyed, just as if I'd been crucified myself. Um, it's, it's not terrible, um, but I think that's not a bad way to begin to thinking uh, about it. And, and you, I hope you know this. You know, if you've been here for any length of time, um, you have heard about justification and being made righteous uh, repeatedly. We've seen this not just in this catechism, but um, I, I hope you've heard me say this nearly every week and preach it nearly uh, every week. And maybe for some of you, it's like, yeah, we heard this before. It's kind of becoming repetitive and redundant. Like, okay, we get it. Justify, you know, God loves us and so on. But, but it is the hardest thing to really, really believe. That you have been justified, made righteous, declared righteous by God. Period. And that's why we have to, to hear it every week. And to be reminded of it constantly because it's so hard to believe. And when you get it, it's the greatest thing in the world. Um, Because I know that most of you probably believe that you have been saved by faith. You can make that declaration. Many of you probably had a moment that you can point to when you came to that realization of that belief. But then over time, maybe even today, you know, you're struggling with what it is that you really believe. And you're having a hard time really believing that word. Maybe you're having like, you know, good quiet times and you've been going to church regularly. You tithe and you, you feel good about your faith and your relationship with God. That, that's good. But sometimes even in that, there's this sort of subtle shift that takes place where you grow confident of your righteousness, of your ability to do those things and feel good. You begin to rely on your discipleship rather than trusting wholly on the work of God for you. Right? Then when you get busy or you're tired or you get lazy, then then you start to waver. Maybe you haven't been reading your Bible or praying as much as you think you should be and you feel a little guilty. Maybe you haven't been very kind to your in-laws. Maybe you've been anxious about your grades in school. And so you you lose a little bit of that confidence you've had. Because now you're wondering, you know, maybe God doesn't quite as pleased with me as before as when I was really into it and praying and carrying out my other spiritual disciplines. Maybe you're afraid that God is somehow going to love you a little bit less, just a little bit. I mean, he still loves you, but just a little bit less. Maybe you are fearful that you're going to be punished in some way. Maybe you are thinking God wants me to get my act together 
to get back into his good graces. And then Satan starts to mess with your head and starts telling you, you know, what kind of a Christian are you? How do you call yourself a Christian leader with these kinds of sins in your life? What kind of a Christian parent messes up like that with their kids? Right? And when when that starts to happen, you've got to remember this word, justification. God has declared me righteous. Period. You've got to shout back, my hope is built on nothing less and nothing more than Christ's righteousness. Nothing else. That's where you've got to take your stand. You know, it's interesting because there's an ongoing debate. Uh, maybe you don't care as much, but among uh, scholars, there's this ongoing debate about how to translate this phrase, faith in Jesus. Uh, Paul says here several times, uh, we are justified by faith in Jesus or faith in Christ Jesus. Um, in verse 16, in the uh, English Standard Version, it says twice that we are justified by faith in Jesus, and that is what we know. But faith in Jesus can be translated just as easily or just as legitimately as faith of Jesus or the faith, faithfulness of Jesus. You following me? Faith in Jesus or the faithfulness of Jesus. The King James Version went with faith of Jesus. Most modern translations, and the way probably all of you learned this, and this is the way I learned it, and I grew up with it, is that you are justified by faith in Jesus. That is, the faith that I have or the faith that I place in Jesus and in his work for me on the cross. We are justified, declared righteous, because... We put our trust, we put our faith in what he has done for us. But, grammatically, it can mean that we are justified, not by the trust that I put on Christ, but by Christ's own faithfulness. Christ's obedience to the cross. You see the difference? You with me here? So which is it? Is it that I have to have faith in Jesus to be justified, that my decision to trust him, is that what makes me righteous before God? Or is it the faithfulness of Jesus for me? The faith that Jesus demonstrated in his obedience to God all the way to the cross that makes me righteous. That, that's the debate that scholars and, you know, are having. Um, for me, I think the ambiguity here and the possibility for me tells me that they're both true. Do we need faith in Jesus? Do I need to place my trust in Jesus? Yes, absolutely. We are called repeatedly to place our trust in Jesus. We cannot get away from that. We are called to make a decision, a choice for Christ, to place our trust in him. But are we also saved by the objective faithfulness of what Jesus did for us on the cross? Yes, absolutely. It's his work for us that saves me. That's the source of my own faith, is is what he did. So even when my faith is weak, I know that Christ's faithfulness is certain. And so I think this, this both possibilities for me tells me that it requires both on my part to 
place my trust in him to make that decision, to work at that, and also at the same time to trust Christ's own work for me. That that, what he already did, that that is what is going to save me. If you have to choose one, if you have to choose one, then I I would always choose the faithfulness of Jesus over my own faithfulness. Right? Because that's a lot more reliable than my own faith. All right. So we're justified faith by the faithfulness of Jesus, by our trust in him. And so this is what we build our life on. The Christian life is this trust. It's not about preparing a resume for God to approve. It's not preparing an application to get into heaven. It's not about listing your spiritual accomplishments, you know, like how early you got up every Sunday morning or how many hours you've prayed or how many chapters of the Bible you read, how much money you gave to missions, how many people you've evangelized or, you know, mission trips you've been on, things like that. So I have to, let me just be as clear and as clearer as I can possibly be. We are made righteous. We are declared righteous, justified by Christ's righteousness, period. Okay? That's justification. We can't move from that. That's the good news. Nothing that we do, but what Christ has already done for us on the cross. That's the good news. Okay? Now, because of that, because of this great, unshakable, unchanging truth, knowing that, knowing what has been done for us, then we respond to that truth. Verse 20, Paul writes, I've been crucified with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. And so it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, this is the life now I'm going to live, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I've been justified. I've been crucified. It is done. It is what God has done for me in Christ Jesus. And in fact, the, 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 the grammar here, the perfect tense, tells me that being co-crucified, I've been crucified with Christ, is, a, is an event that is completed in the past, but it has repercussions or implications for my present living. In other words, there is this kind of uh, shaping of my life that is happening because I have been crucified. It has an impact in the way I live my life. And that impact is this idea of sanctification. And Paul goes on to say even more that Christ lives in me, that his living presence in me continues to shape how I live my life. Not just in some you know, symbolic or, or metaphorical sense that Christ is in me, but in some real, some real spiritual sense, Christ is living in me, and I now live my life accordingly. It's transformed by that knowledge, by that reality. So my justification leads me to a life of sanctification. Okay. Um, as I said, these are um, two really big words. And, um, you know, our, the staff and I, we initially thought about making this into two sermons, you know, a sermon about justification and then about sanctification. Um, but we want to get through the uh, catechism uh, sometime this year. Um, 
And also, I want to keep these two together to keep, you know, they're, they're, we often talk about them separately, but, but they're so uh, connected, and I want to I want to remember that. Um, because, you know, I grew up in the Presbyterian Church for most of my life, and, you know, justification was always emphasized. And I always thought justification is what God does for me, and then sanctification is what I do for God, right? That God has forgiven me, so now I'm going to you know, live this life of holiness, and I'm going to make all this effort to, to please God. Um, some of you who may have grown up in the, uh, the Methodist church, for example, the um, emphasis might have been reversed. Uh, stereotypically, the Methodists emphasize the, the sanctification, right? Our pursuit of holiness uh, and, and engagement uh, with the world and, and so on. Um, but I realized uh, that that's, that's not quite right, um, both justification and sanctification are the work of God. Both are what God does. But here's the way we might kind of think about it. They're both gifts, but justification is God's completed work for us in Christ. It's God's completed work for us in Christ. But sanctification is God's continuing work in us through the Spirit. Justification is completed work for us on the cross by, you know, by Jesus. But sanctification is God's work in us, continuing work in us through the Holy Spirit. Um, justification delivers us from the penalty of sin and sanctification helps us with our ongoing struggle against the power of sin which continues to hold sway. Um, in that sense, I think sanctification is not only a gift, but it is also a duty for us to fulfill. We are to both receive it, but at the same time, we are to strive for, to work toward, to, be, uh, to struggle against the powers of sin, not only in our personal lives, but in the life of our communities. We've been free, we've been given the power to live as free people. right? So it's, you know, sometimes I've, I've heard in the, in the past people say, well, you know, I've been saved, I've been justified, and so that's it. It doesn't matter what I do. That, that's, that's a complete misunderstanding of what it is to be justified. That, that's not the way that it works. Justification, if, if you understand what that really means, ought to motivate us. Right? That ought to be the basis for our living this, this new life, this pursuit of sanctification because of what God has done for us. That's what it is to be a Christian. It, it involves a fundamental shift in our position that, that God has moved us from death to life. And so now in that new position, we pursue a life of holiness to live in the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit. That's what it looks like. And so justification and sanctification are held together. And, you know, there's a lot of ways to talk about what that looks like. But I just want to just... Uh, Look at this interaction because I think it's a, it's a good illustration of what um, what this looks like, of this demonstration of this uh, slow and gradual development in sanctification. Right. So Peter and Paul here have this uh, exchange. Peter is certain of his justification. He knows he's been justified. He knows he's been made righteous. Uh, he made that great declaration that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, for which he was commended. 
He knows that he's been justified by faith in Christ alone. He's led thousands to faith by preaching that very message that you are justified, you are made righteous by Christ alone. He's preached it. Thousands of people have come to faith through that. He's cured illnesses. He's performed miracles. I mean, he's, he's a pillar of the church, right? But he is not immune to peer pressure. He is not immune, you know, to the cultural trappings that he spent his whole life growing up in. He, like every one of us, he has to grow in his maturity in working out his faith in his sanctification. And that can happen and happens through a variety of means. God uses a variety of means. But the one that I see here is the importance of community in our sanctification. He needed Paul to rebuke him, to tell him he was wrong, to help him in his sanctification. You know, a lot of people look at Paul's public rebuke as a model of how leaders should be rebuked publicly. But before you get any ideas, let me say that I think Paul did not handle this situation the way he probably should have handled it. Uh, I would argue that just as Peter needed rebuke, I think um, Paul needs rebuke about rebuking in public, privately. They, they both need to grow in their sanctification. You know, because I think the way Paul did this kind of reminds me of the way that people, you know, um, try to publicly shame people on the internet, right? This kind of knee-jerk reaction when someone does something wrong, it's like, bam, you just hit them on, on Twitter or, or whatever. Um, I, I don't think that's the way we're supposed to do it. Um, Peter certainly needed to be rebuked. He needed to repent because he, he was compromising the gospel. And so someone had to, someone had to deal with him. And you've got to be courageous because even though Peter's a pillar of the church, right, someone had to talk to him and say, hey, this, this is not right. And so I hope Peter heard that. I hope he was mature enough and sanctified enough that he would say to Paul, hey, you know, Paul, you're right. I'm sorry. You know, I was wrong. I, I jeopardized the, the integrity of the gospel. Um, and that Peter afterwards would apologize to his Gentile friends. He would explain what he did wrong to his Jewish uh, Christian friends and ask for their forgiveness and repent and confess and all of that. Um, and then, you know, they'd all go to, you know, Korean barbecue and eat some good, you know, pork together, right? And, and be reconciled and all of that. So, so I hope all of that happens. And maybe it did. But then I... Also imagine, you know, Peter taking Paul aside and saying, hey, listen, Paul, you know, I understand I was wrong and I I needed to be rebuked and thank you for that. But, you know, you didn't really have to do that to my face in front of everybody. You know, you could have done that privately. You know, Jesus said, you know, if someone sins, you know, take them privately and then if he doesn't repent, then bring a few more friends and then tell it in front of the church. So, you know, there's a couple of other steps you could have done before, you know, you humiliated me in front of everybody, right? And I hope Paul would have said, you're right, next time I'll do that. And we know, we have evidence that, you know, as you read Paul's letters, um, as he gets older and older, you see that he's matured, that he matures, that some of his zealousness that was misdirected um, gets reined in. 
And I think this is our call. Uh, we, we have to defend the gospel. We cannot compromise on the good news in, in, any, in any way. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we have to strive toward the sanctification, helping one another uh, toward sanctification. As Proverbs says, as iron sharpens iron, so we ought to sharpen one another in our holiness. We can't just, just let people be. We've got we've to work toward a holiness toward a way of being and living that declares to the world, you know, there, there's a difference that Christ makes in my life. There's a difference that the church is going to make in our communities, in our society. Because the Spirit of God lives in me. And so we, we've got to push each other and help each other um, with that. And that's why we need this community. You know, I have to tell you, this is not to be um, politically correct or anything, but you know, this is why it's so helpful to have diversity of friends or diversity of people in the church. Um, I know that for myself. I'm so thankful for this because um, to have a diverse set of voices in my ears, in our leadership, um, for example, um, because it's so easy to, to just have this really narrow sense and forget and to... Um, think that this one small narrow way is the only way or the right way um, and, and without those other voices like for myself it would be so easy for me to um, to shape the church into my own image and believe me nobody wants that right we need one another to help us on this road of sanctification um, so you know those of you who are um, younger than me, almost all of you, those of you who are, you know, different gender, different marital status, who come from different theological backgrounds, right? All of these different differences, like, I need to hear your voice because that helps shape my faith. That really does. That really does. And that's part of what it means to be sanctified and how it can grow in sanctification. This life I now live having been justified, and so now being sanctified. Let me just close with this quick thought. Verse 14, Paul says that when he saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, he called them out on it. I really like this word, conduct that is not in step, that is not being sanctified, walking in the wrong way. This word, conduct, not in step, in the Greek is orthopodeo. Ortho, um, like... um, Orthodox, um, orthopedics. Um, there's some sort of bug killer that begins with ortho. I forget what that is. Um, right? So, and then uh, the podeo comes from foot, right? So, literally, it means either um, straight foot, straight walk, right? So, it has this idea of um, walking straight, walking upright. Or, uh, more metaphorically, to act correctly. That's the idea, right? That their conduct was not in step. That means they weren't walking right. You know, when I, when I read that orthopodeo, the first word that came into my mind was orthopedic, right? Because it sounds pretty similar. And I thought, oh, that's where, they, that's where we get the English, English word from. Uh, unfortunately, that's not true. Uh, the ortho is the same. But orthopedics, the pedics, comes from another word, uh, which is the word for child, uh, like in pediatrics. So it's a different 
word in the, the second part. Um, so this is not, again, grammatically correct. But I love this idea of, you know, walking straight and uh, orthopedics, right? Um, like orthopedic shoes. Like when, you, when you're not walking quite right, like you need these shoes to help you walk straight. Because we, we all need help. Um, and I, I, just, I just like that word picture. That sanctification for us, uh, that, that we can be like one another's orthopedic shoes to help us to walk straight. Because we all need help in walking straight and growing in holiness. And God has given us one another to shape that path together. Okay? So, so let's be thankful for those folks in our lives, the people who challenge us and even rebuke us. And Thank God for those voices, because we need it. Because it's for our good. All right, let's pray together. Lord, we, uh, again, we're just uh, so thankful. Uh, Sometimes we forget. We we forget to be so just overwhelmed by the fact that you have made us righteous, that you have declared us righteous, that we have nothing to do and nothing to worry about because you have chosen to love us and to save us in Jesus Christ. And God, just help us to build on that trust. Because of that, help us to live a life of holiness, to pursue holiness, to help those in our lives, to pursue you in a way that brings you glory. Thank you for the people in our lives that you have placed to help us walk straight. We thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.